Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Oak City Church. As Jake said, the church isn't a building, it's a body. And so uh, we are gathered as best we can this morning, and we welcome you to that. If you're visiting, uh, I want to welcome you as well. That's something I didn't expect, but um, on Monday uh, and throughout the week, I heard from a number of folks that invited visitors to the live stream and had people tune in. And so, um, welcome. We're glad that uh, you chose to tune in this morning. I, someone reminded me of my words that I, that I say to our church a lot when we're gathered. I say that... Um, we forget this, but if you haven't been to church in a while, church is a pretty scary place. And when you say church, uh, I mean, there can be a, a bunch of different things that come to people's mind. And I say that to our folks to remind them uh, just what it's like. And so if there are people that are new um, when we gather together uh, to, you know, reach out to them, encourage them, um, just make sure to, to be to be friendly and um because church can be an overwhelming place. Now, I'll say this. I don't think Oak City Church is an overwhelming place. It's a really manageable size. Our people are friendly, but not too friendly, if you know what I mean. And so uh, if you're visiting, we'd love to have you uh, stop by when we, when we get back to, to gathering together on a regular basis. Now, I want to thank our team again uh, who has put this together. We um, added music this week. Uh, we've got a little bit better lighting. We had words uh, on the screen. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lean in real far anymore because people told me a number of people told me last week, don't do that anymore. And somebody got me one of these. So we've got like, we've got, we've got a laugh track. Uh, so there we go. I, um, I want to invite you. We, one of the things that we do when we gather on a regular basis is we ask people to fill out what we call a connect card. And the connect card is, uh, where we, um, ask you to, to give us some prayer requests that we can be praying for throughout the week, some praises, some things that you're grateful for. And part of that is, is just a reminder of your own heart. What are the things that I'm, I'm seeking the Lord for? And what are some things that I'm grateful for? Uh, and if you're, if you're new and you want more information about the church, would like someone to contact you, there's a box on that. So we do that when we gather on Sundays, but we have that virtually it's on the live stream page. If you scroll down to the bottom and we would love for you to fill that out. We will pass those prayer requests on to um, either a member of our prayer team or one of our elders, and we'll be praying for you throughout the week. So take a minute, um, either now or after the service, and uh, do that for us. A few coronavirus-related announcements. Um, we have sent out some prayer requests for A.J. Heinz, um, who's part of our congregation. A.J. ended up going to the hospital. Thankfully, he didn't have coronavirus, um, but he ended up having pneumonia. Uh, but pneumonia is more treatable. And so they treated him. He was in the hospital for a few days, and he went home last night. We are super grateful uh, for that. If you have, um, you know, needs that have come up because of the coronavirus, we opened up a fund through our online giving portal through PushPay. One of the funds now is the COVID-19 relief fund. We already have several thousand dollars in that fund. So thanks to those who have donated to it. And if you have needs or you know someone that has needs, um, please let me know. Yeah, you can email Jeff at oakcitychurch.com and um, we will, you know, start helping people out uh, as, as needed. And uh, last coronavirus-related thing, if you have come up with creative ways to pass the time while you were in whatever form of quarantine you were in, 
uh, please pass those along to me and I'll probably pass them on this week. I did hear of one, one person this week, no kids in the house, but went out and bought some Lego sets, uh, just to keep themselves occupied. So I thought that was pretty funny and so did everybody else that I told that to in person. So give me those, uh, thoughts about how to pass the time and, and I would love to pass them along, uh, to the church. Okay. Now we are going to go back into the, the sermon series that we started two weeks ago, um, before last week where I, I just kind of talked about what's going on with the coronavirus. I do have to issue, uh, one retraction from last week. Um, my mom who tuned in last week called me right after the service to let me know. I referred to her as being 75 years old and she's only 73 years old. So mom, my apologies to you. This is the last time. It's the last time I'm going to do that. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, but I wanted to, to issue that retraction. We're going to go back into the series on the faces of Easter and talking about different characters in the Easter story and how we learn from them about, you know, what it means to follow Jesus and how to hold our faith. And this week we're going to talk about a guy named Pontius Pilate. And that is a name that I think is, is really familiar um, just, just being in America and being around Christianity, I think everybody's familiar with the name, uh, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate gets a surprising amount of ink in the gospels. He's mentioned in all four accounts of Jesus life, death and resurrection. Um, he's key in Jesus being crucified because he is the Roman authority that allowed the Jewish leaders, uh, to kill Jesus. And so he's key in the Easter story and the gospels record his internal struggle of what to think and what to believe about Jesus. And so he teaches us something about the nature of faith, um, and the struggle that all of us go through to figure out what to believe about Jesus and how to carry that faith and the struggle that, um, those around you, you know, that you wish would believe in Jesus, uh, go through and trying to figure all that out. And so I think there's some, there's some things that we're going to learn through, um, Pilate's, uh, story today. Um, there are, by, by way of introduction, there are, um, recently meaning in the last, well, months locally, and I'll get to this in a second, but the last few years, there are stories that you hear maybe more frequently of people that that have lost their faith. And so the term around that, that they put is deconstructed their faith, their deconstruction stories. And that may be a term that you haven't heard before, but we, we make up new terms all the time, right? If, if two or three weeks ago, somebody had told you to flatten the curve. And I want you to think about this for a second. If someone came up to you two weeks ago and said, Hey buddy, you need to flatten the curve, right? You probably would have punched them because that you thought they would been calling you fat, but that's not it. And so deconstruction is one of those terms that just pops up and, um, and it's where people have deconstructed, you know, what they believe. And sometimes they reconstruct that. And then sometimes they just lose their faith altogether. And those are hard stories. You know, um, I think, I think it's more prominent now, not because it's happening more frequently, but because we have more access to those stories because the internet makes everything accessible to us. And so we hear about folks that have deconstructed their faith, uh, more often. And so some people like, there's a guy I used to quote a lot named Rob Bell, who, um, he, his faith, at least in part was deconstructed. And I don't know if it was reconstructed, but he's kind of, you know, fell off the scene. And a woman who was a worship leader named Lisa Gunger went through a, like a full deconstruction, a pastor named Josh Harris, who wrote a pretty famous book, 
and this is probably 20 years ago, and I kissed dating goodbye, became really popular recently, renounced his faith. And then locally, uh, there were a couple of guys that went to NC State that were our friends with a number of people at Oak City Church um, uh, named Rhett and Link that ended up becoming like YouTube for real celebrities <laughs> with, I don't millions of followers maybe. And, um, and they went through this process and they put some podcasts up earlier this year about what happened to their faith and how they deconstructed their faith. And that's been hard for a lot of people right here um, in town, but in Oak City Church as well. Now, I'll also say that there are plenty of people that reconstructed their faith or went from no faith to faith that didn't have faith. And we hear those stories too. So a few weeks ago in the weekly email, at the beginning of that weekly email that you can sign up for on the homepage, I put you know, just a little something that's been on my radar recently, and it was a, um, a Right Now Media series uh, by a guy named Jay Warner Wallace, who was a homicide detective who applied his homicide detective instincts to the gospel and ended up becoming a follower of Jesus and now presents a defense of the faith. He does apologetics, and that's a great, that's a great series for you to check out on there. So he's a story like that. Josh McDowell is a famous story like that. C.S. Lewis is a story like that. I mean, he didn't come to faith in Christ until his 30s and then became enormously um, influential. And, and lately, a woman named Rosaria Butterfield in the last few years has really spoken deeply into cultural issues, and she had come from a place of no faith um, to, you know, total faith. Why? Why does this happen? Why do some people go, you know, from deconstructed to reconstructed or constructed. And some people go from constructed to deconstructed. What is it, uh, you know, that forms our faith? How do we nurture our faith? How do we care for it? And Pilate's story is going to speak into that. Now, um, this is how I would, I would say this, that your faith is, which we're going to see your, and this is true. Your faith is built on evidence and we're going to see that in Pilate's story, but it's shaped by a lot more than just evidence. Your faith is built on evidence but it's shaped by a lot more than just evidence. And either one of those statements might be news for you. Um, Pilate, Pilate uh, was a Roman governor over a province of uh, Judea. And that's where Jesus did most of his ministry and lived his life. The Romans ruled over a large swath of the civilized world at that point. And um, when they... The way that they chose to rule is to let local rulers rule local territories, but then they would put Roman authorities over those local leaders. And so there was, they kind of gave the locals the illusion that they were ruling. And so the Jewish people had a king, they had a son of Herod that was the king over this area, and they had high priests and the Sanhedrin that ruled over the Jewish people. But really, Pilate was in charge. And so there's a lot of tension between the local ruler and the Roman ruler. And then he reports back to the Caesar um, back in Rome. And, um, and there's a limit to local, local rule, and we'll see that. Now, uh, Pilate, there's a, lot of, a bit of information, historical information about Pilate. Not much of it is flattering. Um, it seems he wasn't, he wasn't born in nobility uh, to, to be in the Roman system of government. He probably got this position by marrying the illegitimate daughter of the third wife of the emperor Tiberius. So good luck following that family tree. He's in this position of being a Roman governor, which is good, uh, but it's not great. It's like 
be an ambassador for the United States, you know, and finding out if you're in the State Department, you get to be an ambassador, but you're the ambassador to like Nepal or something like that, you know. So he's probably hoping for something more and aspiring for that. And it doesn't, it doesn't, there's not a lot of great stuff about his rule over this province, province, excuse me, of Judea. One guy uh, reports that Pilate's administration was one long litany of briberies, insults, robberies, outrages, wanton injustices, constantly repeated executions without trial, and ceaseless and grievous cruelty. So there you go. <laughs> uh, uh, and so we, we pick up with Pilate when um, the Jewish leaders have arrested Jesus. They've already put him through their own sham trial, and then they bring him to Pilate. I'm going to be reading some verses out of the Gospel of John, and so you can turn to John 18 if you want to follow along. There's a lot of verses because I think they're important. I'm going to maybe a little paraphrase some of them as I move, and so I'll move um, fairly quickly. It says, then they led, this is John 18, 28, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest um, over the Jewish people to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves didn't enter the governor's headquarters. so They wouldn't be defiled, but could still eat the Passover. Pilate went outside and said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered them over to you. That's not a great answer. <laughs> so right from the beginning, Pilate gets the idea that something shady is going on. What did he do wrong? Well, he did something wrong or we wouldn't be here, right? Uh, like, just not a great answer. Pilate says to him, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And so they get to it. Pilate, the only reason we're here is because we want to kill him. And we can't kill him unless you tell us that we can kill him. So can we kill him, Pilate? Like, that's what they're after. And then um, the next verse says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And the way that he says this, the emphasis on from what most commentators say is you. Are you the king of the Jews? And so, so here you, you got to embrace this scene. You've got Pilate who is aspiring to a kingly existence. You know, he works for the Caesar and he'd like to be closer to the Caesar. He's got palaces and he's got servants and he's got the finest foods and he has the finest clothes. He is always aspiring for more power and more status and there is never enough. And then you have Jesus who really is a king, um, but he is probably dressed in tatters. He's already been beaten up once. He has given up his glory. He's given up his power. He's given up his status to come from heaven to earth to serve the people that he is ruling over. And so this contrast is built between Jesus, the king of the Jews, and the, the ruler over this Roman province. Uh, and then Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Jesus, understand what he does here. He, he flips the conversation. Um, he turns the tables on Pilate. M Matthew and Mark both record that at this point, Pilate, it says he's amazed by Jesus. And I think it's, it's the way this conversation goes. Jesus is a man whom people want to kill. They've just asked Pilate, can we kill him? And he's not making some loud defense. You know, he's not saying, listen, they didn't even tell you anything that I did wrong. What is going on here? He instead turns to Pilate and says, hey, Pilate, what do you believe? You know, 
uh, this isn't about, it's like saying, this isn't about me, Pilate. This is about you. One, one um, pastor said that it's no longer Jesus on trial before Pilate, but Pilate on trial before Jesus. And I think Pilate gets it, and he's a little bit unnerved by it. Now, Jesus um, goes on and says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not from this world. And Pilate says, so you are a king. And Jesus says, you said that I'm king. And this, you end up getting into a really important part of this conversation right here. He says, Jesus says, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. This is why I'm here to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And that is a way of saying to Pilate, Pilate, are you of the truth? It's really a way of saying that to us. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And catch Pilate's response. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now that question could be asked a couple different ways, right? It could be asked sincerely or it could be asked cynically. And almost everyone agrees that it was asked cynically. He's not looking for a dissertation on the truth but he is dismissing the truth. He doesn't wait to hear the answer to the question, but moves right on. And it's a way of saying truth. Oh, what is truth? We can't know the truth. What does the truth matter? Uh, and, and I think this is just to set up what's going on in Pilate's heart. Uh, you see a battle between, on the one hand, what he has been aspiring to. It's really his his idols, his false idols of power and status and comfort. And on the other hand, pursuing truth and pursuing God and really understanding who Jesus is. And that's the battle that's going on in our hearts all the time too. And knowing God always involves faith. And that means a surrender of control and your idols will always give you the illusion of control. So just, I want to start speaking that language because I think that's what's going on in Pilate's heart. After he said this, uh, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. It's the first time he says that. Pay attention to that. But you have a custom. I get to release one guy to you on the Passover. You want me to release Jesus, the king of the Jews? But they asked for Barabbas, who is um, a thief and a robber and a murderer. Moving into chapter 19, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, put the purple robe on him, came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate goes out again and said, See him bringing him out, that you may not find, or you may know that I find no guilt in him. Second time. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe. Pilate said, Behold the man. The chief priests and officers see him. They cry out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him for a third time. I find no guilt in him. Now, the conversation turns again. The Jews say, we have a law. According to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. Uh, they take this beyond just being a political king, ruler, the king of the Jews, but he called himself the son of God. And that's blasphemy is the charge um, by which they executed him. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. You get this growing picture 
of what's going on inside of Pilate and the turmoil and the tension in his soul. He's amazed by Jesus. He's already said three times that he finds no guilt in Jesus. Here, him being even more afraid indicates that he was afraid in the first place. The Jews have let him know that this is ratcheted up from being the king of the Jews to being the son of God, that there's something else going on. You get um, in the gospel of Matthew, uh, he records that while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, while all this stuff is going on, his wife sends word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Have nothing to do with that righteous man because something's happened. And so his wife lets him know something else is going on here. There's something to it. He knows that, but, but does he know enough in his own mind to act on what he knows? There's evidence, but is there enough evidence to act? And really that's how faith works. Pilate enters his headquarters and says to Jesus, like, so we, we go for round two of the inquisition here. Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate says to him, it's getting tense. Pilate's getting frustrated. Won't you speak to me? Don't you know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You've got sin, Pilate, but the people that delivered me over to you have greater sin. And from then on, there's some action. Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So again, get inside a Pilate's head because there's some equation going on. I think, but I don't know that he is who he says he is. And something tells me I shouldn't let them do this to him because there's evidence that something really strange is going on here. But then on the other hand, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. And I know I'm in trouble with Caesar if this gets out of control. And trouble with Caesar puts at risk everything that I have worked for my entire life. That's the equation. What do I do? So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Aramaic Gabbatha. It was the day of the preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to the Jewish rulers to be crucified. Pilate has evidence. He's suspicious of the motives of the Jewish leaders from the beginning. Matthew tells us he knew that it was out of envy that those leaders had delivered Jesus up to Pilate. Pilate had a sense that something was different about Jesus that grew into a conviction that something was different about Jesus. Three times he says he finds no guilt in him. His wife has this dream and brings that to him. He tries, a couple of gospel accounts tells us that he tries to wash his hands of the whole thing before the crowd and say, I'm innocent of this man's blood because he knows somebody is going to be guilty. But eventually he turns Jesus over knowing that they would kill him. He eventually acts really in contradiction to the evidence that he has. And it seems that he believes. Um, And it seems that 
he acts in contradiction to that evidence because the, he has too much to lose by going along with the evidence. Man, I think that teaches us a ton about faith and how our faith works and how it's shaped and how we keep it. So I'm going to go through a handful of just short statements about faith and, and explain um, what I mean by that. And the first is this, that faith is based on evidence. And that may seem kind of basic, but I don't think it is. I think you hear people a lot talk about blind faith. Like, well, I just don't want to accept something on blind faith. Or accuse, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, accuse you of, of accepting this on blind faith. And I, I honestly, I just can't stand that because my faith is anything but blind. Pilate here has evidence about who Jesus is, and it's that evidence that has, it's influenced his actions in part, but not in full, at least enough to get him to seek to release him, to wash his hands of it. Uh, he knew that he was doing the wrong thing by letting them kill Jesus. There was evidence for Pilate to act on and create that tension. My faith is anything but blind. I have books upon books and podcasts upon podcasts and articles upon articles and conversations upon conversations and experiences upon experiences that support my faith in Jesus as this, the divine son of God who came from heaven, lived a perfect life on earth, died on a cross for my sins and rose from the dead to ascend to heaven. Uh, I might have too much. Look at my bookshelves. I might have too much evidence. Evidence that like betrays the fact that I really want proof <laughs> um, and, and attention within me. If you're a skeptic and you want evidence for this stuff, let's talk because I geek out on it and I would love to have that conversation uh, with you. It's by no means a blind faith. And I don't, I don't think anybody's faith is a blind faith. There's plenty of evidence for the Christian faith. Um, and I think it's a bit of an insult to say it's blind faith. And I, th I know in certain instances where I've had those conversations, it's a cop-out so that people don't actually have to investigate the evidence for themselves and admit that there is evidence that they are acting in contradiction of. So faith is based on evidence. At the same time, faith is not certainty. Faith and certainty are two different things. By that, I mean like absolute 100% certainty. Evidence has limits, and it's different than proof. Evidence and proof are two different things. You know, you look at some evidence, and in a court of law, there's, a, there's standards of reasonable doubt, you know, like evidence will lead to that. Proof is something different. Proof is we can take it in a lab and run it over and over again, and it's always going to come out the same way, and that is a proof. Faith is always going to be based on evidence that is going to fall short of of proof. That's the nature of the thing. You're not going to be a hundred percent certain. We don't have a video of Jesus rising from the dead, coming out of the tomb. And even if we did, we'd think it was doctored, you know, we would, we would play with that. That I think is hard. I think it's probably always been hard. I think it might be particularly hard in a day when we worship proof and the certainty that proof brings. And we only want to act in the presence of certainty and we delude ourselves into thinking that we're only acting in the presence of certainty. Science, I think, offers the illusion of certainty. And I'm going to be careful because I love science. I think all those books 
or evidence that I would have been a great scientist because I love chasing things down and looking for proof. You look at the evolution of science, there's great evidence that science came apart, like came about in the presence of great theology for about a thousand of years. And you can look that stuff up for yourself, but it came, most of the early great scientists were people that believed in Jesus as, you know, the divine son of God who rose from the dead. Um, those things aren't in contradiction to each other. But I think in our day, we worship science, uh, and, and science can change its mind a lot. Science is rightfully constantly discovering new things, but some of those new things invalidate the old things that we were certain of. Um, sometimes scientists even overrepresent the things uh, that they are studying because it's to their personal advantage, and they have egos and need funding, and theologians do the same thing. But I just think we put it on a pedestal that... Um, maybe it's not, not supposed to, to sit on. And so we, we, we long for this certainty. Uh, one of the guys that went to state, to NC state, um, that I mentioned in my introduction about deconstructing faith, Rhett, uh, I listened to his podcast and I don't want to cast any aspersions on him. Listen to it. It was really sincere. Um, he it seems to be genuinely looking at evidence and struggling, struggling for truth. But he said something towards the end of the podcast. He said when he, when he finally like abandoned his faith and said, man, I don't, I just don't believe this anymore. He said he felt a great freedom. And what he said he was free from was the need for certainty. And man, that, that struck me. I'm not positive what he meant by that, but I think it fits in this that we long for certainty so much and we have a hard time existing just in this place of faith where certainty isn't something um, that God has ever promised. In fact, I think he promised the opposite of it. Uh, Paul says this to the Corinthians, we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord for we walk by faith and not by sight. And man, that is a verse that rings in my soul frequently. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. It's assurance and it's conviction. It's confidence, but it's not proof. Um, it's the conviction of things that we don't see. And that's where faith brings us. So faith is not certainty. And it takes me to my third thing. Faith is hard. Faith is hard. A life of faith is hard. Can I get a virtual amen? If you're on YouTube, just give me an amen with that, that faith is hard. Um, evidence leads to faith. Proof uh, gives us control. <laughs> and evidence isn't going to give us control. It would be easier to only act when you're certain because then you could control the outcomes. And that's what we want. And with God, you don't control the outcomes. Uh, if, you've, if you've been to Oak City Church for a minute, we're edging back into the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve with God telling them not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they eat from it because they want control. They want to they dictate what's best for them and not God. We want to be God. And we only want to be God because we think we would be really good at it. And we think we would be really good at it because we have faith in ourselves. And we probably have more faith in ourselves than we do in God. And this may be like the whole issue right there, you know. Uh, but that's just not how following Jesus works. 
He says you have to lose your life to save your life. That means you give up control and let God have control because God is smarter than you. (laughs) God is smarter than you. And we just have a tough time with this. You have to give control over to him before we can live the way that we were made to live. Um, you know, so faith is difficult. And honestly, uh, it's in so many ways, we're all walking by faith all the time. You know, now we're doing a lot of things by faith because people are telling us how much trouble that this is. And it, in the, this is trouble, right? But we're walking by faith of experts that are telling us how much trouble this is. Um, man, if you're married, you're walking by faith, right? You stand in, in front of God and everybody and say, till death do us part. And you're having faith that this person is going to, you know, be the person that you married or that this is going to go well. Have kids, you're having faith that things are going to go okay, you know. You have faith in your reason, faith in your intuition, faith in experts who tell you what reality is like. Pilate, in this scene, he's exercising faith in Caesar because Caesar and the way of Caesar has made promises to him. And so he's exercising faith that Caesar is going to come through on those promises and Rome is going to come through on those promises. And that's going to be better than what it is to follow Jesus in that moment. And faith in Jesus would have been really hard for Pilate in that moment. He would have had to risk um, his favor with Caesar. He'd had to move into an area that's totally out of his control if he had acted on his faith that Jesus was really his king and the son of God. And you and I are not so different uh, from Pilate. So faith is hard. Faith leads to actions. Faith leads to actions. Real faith leads to actions. Your actions, what you spend your time on, what you spend your money on, what you hope for, what gives you energy, those are the things that reveal what you really have placed your faith in. Uh, there's a threshold where faith leads to action. I don't know what that threshold for Pilate was that he would have acted on it. Um, I sat down with my financial advisor. No lie. We just had a meeting scheduled about three weeks ago. It was right after the market took its first little plunge. And I sat across from this guy and I said, you know, like the market just took a dive and nothing's really happened here yet. I have a feeling there's evidence that this is going to get a whole lot worse. I didn't, the threshold wasn't enough for me to act on that evidence and sell everything. Ah, Uh, there's a threshold where evidence leads to action. Um, This is Hebrews 11. And so faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And, And then it goes through by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain action by faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance action. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise action. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he would receive the promise, was in the act of offering up his only son uh, action. By faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Action. 
By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith Rahab the prostitute didn't perish with those who were discontent or disobedient. And he goes through. By faith those who conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, escaped the edge of the sword, made strong out of weakness, put foreign armies to fight, to flight. And then... Things that didn't go well. Some were tormented by faith, refusing to accept release. Um, Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, and imprisonment, were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. All of that by faith, because faith leads to action. If you are a follower of Christ, that is where you and I live. And I'll say this to you, if there's not much action in your life that is dictated by your faith in Jesus, then you do not have much faith. Uh, If there are not significant chunks of your life that do not make any sense, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then your faith is not very strong. James wrote this, you show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith leads to action. Um, next point, and I have just two more. Faith is influenced by more than just evidence. And so this, I think you see clearly in uh, Pilate's story. There's evidence. Um, there's evidence that Jesus is who he said he is. I'm sure there's evidence that he's not. Like, are you the king of the Jews? Yeah, well, then why are you dressed like this? And why don't you have people fighting for you? There's evidence. There's a battle that's going on in his mind about evidence. And we have that with, you know, pursuing faith in Jesus. There's evidence. There's great evidence uh, that Jesus is who he said he was, that testifies to him, uh, that he rose from the dead. But there's also evidence that he didn't, that because nobody's ever risen from the dead, you know, like the just, there are things that blow our minds. And so there's evidence that wars, but then there's something else. It's like a third thing that makes you judge between the two bits of evidence that you have. Uh, And for Pilate, it was the cost It would surely cost him to act on the evidence that he had that Jesus was who he said he was. His life's pursuit was likely at stake in how this turned out. And the, and the Bible speaks to that. Uh, Jesus tells a parable once the parable of the sower. And he, he talks about a farmer that sowed seed on the ground and some of it was on the path. And so didn't grow at all. And some of it was on good soil. And so it grew and multiplied, but some of it was on Uh, rocky soil and some of it was among the thorns and the thorns choked it out and the rocky soil made it so it had no roots. There's something else influencing it. Uh, There is a a time when Jesus is speaking to um, some people in cities nearby where he grew up and he says to them, uh, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And this passage says that he was denouncing the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. They had more evidence than anybody, but they still didn't believe. It was more than just the evidence that factors into our faith. Uh, Paul, and I forget which, which um, church he's speaking to, I think he's in Corinth, but it might be Ephesus. He enters the synagogue for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. But when some of them became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples. There's something else going on. Like, it's more than just evidence. It's a, it's a stubbornness. 
what is what beyond the evidence is influencing your faith, whether you're pursuing faith or whether you're trying to live out your faith, what is influencing it? Is it the approval of those near you? Does that influence how you act on evidence? Is it a disruption in your pursuit of comfort or status or power or whatever it is? Um, is it the, the thought of going to places that are scary places? Cause you don't know what's going to happen of just surrendering control. Does that influence how you act on the evidence that you have? And so that brings me to my final point, that faith is a gift from God to be tended by us. Faith is a gift that he gives us, but we tend it, and we can choose how we tend that faith. Uh, Paul says to the Ephesians, by the grace that you, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Our salvation and our faith, those are the gifts that God has given us. Um, it's his work. He's given us that faith. In Romans 12, by the grace given me, I say to ye, everyone among you, uh, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It's a gift that God gives us. And as such, it's something that we can cultivate and that we contend. The apostles say to Jesus in Luke 17, increase our faith. <laughs> Recognize this God, give me more faith. There's a, a, a just one of my favorite stories in the Bible, a guy that brings his son to Jesus. And the end of that conversation is the guy saying to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> like I know I believe, but I don't believe. And so help this cult, help my faith grow. And so that's got to be a part of our prayer. Are you tending your faith? Are you tending your faith? Um, so faith is built on evidence, but it's shaped by a lot more than just evidence. And so are you, are you tending that whether you're, whether you're in the situation where you find yourself deconstructing your faith and wondering about it, or whether you've never had faith and you're constructing a faith and pursuing it, or whether you're just in that place where you're trying to diligently follow Jesus, uh, day by day, are you doing that? And I've seen people do this well. And I, I frankly, I've seen people do it poorly. Um, there was a guy here a couple of years ago that, over a period of time, we recognized he was going through this deconstruction. Wouldn't have called it that at the time process. And it was specifically about the authority of the Bible. And so when I sat down to talk to him about this, he went through like the voices that he was listening to and reading that did not believe that the Bible was the authoritative word of God. And I said, hey, but have you looked at people on the other side of this that do believe that it's the authoritative word of God and given them equal time to speak into that? And he hadn't. And I'd left frustrated because I was like, well, this points to the third thing that you really want to, to chase after whatever it might be that you're not, you're not even looking at both sides. And so if you're going through that process, man, look at both sides. There was something else about, um, Rhett, the guy I mentioned a couple of times earlier, his podcast was at one point, he specifically said, that um, there was no evidence for the exodus and no evidence for the conquest by um, Israel of the promised land. And the, the day before, completely unrelated, but the day before, I had just finished listening to a podcast, which I put in the weekly this past Friday. It's, it's the thing that I put in the beginning of the weekly. But I just listened to a podcast about evidence for the exodus and for the conquest. And so I listened to this and thought, well, what is that like— and again, I don't want to cast aspersions, but it's out there. And so what does that mean? Look, look, 
Um, look, look for all of it, but also look for that third thing. Look for that third thing and be honest with yourself. What do you have to lose and how is that affecting your pursuit? What are you clinging to um, that may be keeping you from acting on the evidence that God has given us that Jesus is real? Even if you're, if you're not in that place where you're struggling, um, man, tend to that. Be aware of evidence, even to the contrary. Don't be scared of that, but, you know, know what people are thinking and talking about around you. And then and bolster up your faith. Um, every couple of years, I'll read a, a book I've mentioned called Miracles by Eric Metaxas or Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis because they're just, they just bolster the evidence that supports the faith that I have in Christ. And you just got to be aware and be careful of the things like the third things that come in that influence you outside of just the evidence. I uh, kind of as part of Lent, I'm doing this whole 30 thing that involves not eating sugar. Um, and my kids the other day, my kids made some brownies. Like, and the Ghirardelli brownies that you can buy at Costco are, with apologies to your brownies and your grandma's brownies, the best brownies that you can make in the entire world. So my kids make these brownies, and it's bad enough that the batter was there, and then I smelled the brownies cooking. And then when they went to bed, they didn't cover the brownies, so I woke up first in the morning, and there's a pan of brownies that aren't covered, and that's fine because I'm not going to eat brownies for breakfast. Not that that's, I'm above that. But then later in the day, I kept staring at the brownies, and I had to cover up the brownies because I knew I was going to eat a brownie if I didn't cover them up, and they didn't cover them up. Like, you got to be aware of what those temptations are in your life and what you long for that works against your faith. Because faith is some work. And people have said it's like a muscle, and the more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. God gave us every reason to believe. Like, I'm not an expert in world religions, but I've studied them a bit over long periods of time. And we have better evidence than anybody has. This isn't, Christianity isn't tied to a set of teachings. It's tied to historical acts. God working in, through the people of Israel and sustaining them for thousands of years. The person of Jesus, the testimony to his life, the resurrection. Paul said, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then my preaching is in vain and so is your faith. He was willing to tie it to that historical act that nobody has been able to explain. It's based on evidence. Christian, you have great reason to place your faith in Jesus. And if you are, if you are exploring the Christian faith, then please look at that and give it an, an honest exploration um, and, and pray that God would help you on that journey. And, and let us, as the church, uh, help you through that journey of faith. We don't know what happened to Pilate. Um, le- according to legend, some legends, he became a Christian. Tertullian, an early church father, records that he became a Christian. I heard one pastor say he believes it because he doesn't think we would have record of the conversations between Pilate and Jesus if he hadn't become a Christian. Um, later that day, after Jesus dies on the cross, Pilate gives the body to Joseph of Arimathea. So Pilate really is responsible not just for the crucifixion, but he's responsible for the resurrection as well, because otherwise the body would have been thrown in a trash dump. Um, and and uh, so it may be that he came to faith. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you with, with one verse, and it's um, Jesus, after he has risen from the dead, with his disciples, and there was one disciple in particular that wanted evidence. Um, and if you were the one that struggles with faith, this is your guy. It's Thomas, doubting Thomas. And so Jesus appears to him and says, 
you know, see the holes in my hands and the hole in my side. Is this enough for you? And then he said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so we are blessed in that category. Father, thanks for uh, Pilate. Thanks for this story. Thanks for giving us an insight into his soul and the things that are going on. God, I pray um, that you would um, help us to tend to our faith. God, I pray, I'm thankful that you've given us a, a gift of faith and that you've given us evidence to base that faith on and that the more we act on the evidence that we have and the faith we have on Christ, honestly, the, the more we move towards some form of certainty because of the experiences that we have in our lives of following you. And I pray for those who are struggling this morning. Um, God, I pray that you would um, speak to them through your word, that you would... Um, Help them to identify the things that are working against their faith that go beyond evidence and to trust you in those areas of their lives. And I pray you'd help them to have confidence in the evidence that you've given us as to who Jesus is, Lord. And we love you. We're thankful for those things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for uh, joining us this week. Um, We pray that you are staying safe and that you're blessed. During this time um, when, we're, when we're all dealing with the coronavirus. And again, if you have needs or know of needs that we as a church uh, can help meet, please let us know. Bless you guys. We'll see you next week.